Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast. So excited to welcome our next guest to the program. He is an American-Israeli communication strategist, author, and nonprofit executive. He has written five novels about terrorism and Bible prophecy, including the Gold Medallion Book Award winner, The Ezekiel Option. He also has written two nonfiction books, Epicenter and Inside the Revolution. His latest nonfiction book is Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and uh, Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. One of my favorite things is welcoming in authors, and so this is fantastic. We have a stack of Joel Rosenberg books on the coffee table in our family room because a friend of mine who recently moved to Colorado was trying to figure out something to give to our son who has been recuperating from an illness. And she said, oh my gosh, this is a series that we've been reading that we love so much. And she's an avid reader. We've been in book club together for 12 years. So she says, I hope you don't mind, but I sent you something. So the next day I get this box from Amazon. I rip it open and there's all these books by Joel C. Rosenberg. And they're, they're the, they're fiction, but they're, you know, they're exciting books, right? So she's like, you know, start at the, the first one that I sent. And if he loves them, I'm going to keep sending them to him. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like I need to read one of these, but okay. So I'm so excited <laughs> about them. So they're sitting on the coffee table near where he's been recuperating. So then I get my copy of Joel C. Rosenberg's Enemies and Allies, which I actually heard him talking to another host on a podcast that I listened to about this book, some of the things in this book. So I'm like, I've got to have him on my show. So we start working on that. So imagine my surprise when I'm holding this book and I'm sitting right in the same room where my son is and I glance down and I'm like, Joel C. Rosenberg, wait a second. You hadn't so made the connection yet. No, I had so because those are fiction books and they're not, this is a nonfiction book. So anyway, welcome to the program. I, I was, I've now realized that you've written so many books, but I want to talk to you about, well, first of all, the fictional series that you do and then also enemies and allies because I think there's something that people don't really understand about the Middle East that you understand because you've spent so much time there and you have such great relationships with leaders there. So thank you for joining us tonight. Absolutely, Stacy. Thank you for, for having me on. And I'm, I'm so glad that not only you, but your son are also reading <laughs> my book. That's uh, I didn't know that. And I'm very happy about that. Yeah, he, he's so far, he's been very happy, but he likes to finish the whole thing before he gets to like giving any kind of response. But he said, yeah, it's good, mom. That's all I've gotten so far. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Keeping his cards close to his vest. Right. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about enemies and allies. In the book, you have exclusive, never-before-published interviews, insights, and analysis from your conversations with people like the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman or Egypt's President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. These are not people who are easy to get uh, interviews with or, or to meet with. It's not like they're on CNN or MSNBC you know, on a regular basis. How did you create those relationships, and what was it like spending time with them? Well, great question, Stacey, and you're right. Uh, Enemies and Allies is a book unlike any other book that you could you could find in the marketplace because there have been whole biographies uh, written about the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. He's certainly the most uh, consequential, but also the most controversial Arab leader um, in the region. And uh, there have been whole biographies written about him. And the reporters from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal had actually never met him, much less interviewed him. And I spent hours and hours, uh, four hours total, uh, with him over the course of two trips. A New York Times uh, foreign correspondent wrote an entire biography about the uh, president of Egypt, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. Never met the president, never interviewed him. Um, 
much less on the record. So yeah, this is the first book of its kind that takes readers into a region that we all know we need to understand, right? We, we fought wars in Iraq. We fought wars in Afghanistan. We have fought wars against various radical Islamist terror groups. We have a really serious and increasingly dangerous conflict with Iran. We've got four Arab-Israeli peace agreements just in the last 18 months, right? The Abraham Accords. There's a tremendous change. Uh, there's, a, there's a tectonic shift going on. Some shifts are evil and dangerous, and some are very positive. So we all know that uh, we need to understand the region. You've got Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the longest-serving leader in the nation of Israel, the, history, the modern history of Israel. Now he's gone. Right now, you have a totally new leader there and so much change, and yet there is no other book right now in which the reporter, the author has sat down and, 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 and gotten on the record the views of the actual leaders, not, their, not just their aides or their advisor, but the actual principles themselves, kings, crown princes, presidents and prime ministers, and, and ask them the tough questions. You know, uh, what do you think, uh, head of the Saudi Arabia? What do you think of their, the leader of Iran? He, uh, MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, told me he believes the Ayatollah Khamenei of Iran is the modern Hitler, a modern-day Hitler. That's, that's an extraordinary thing from a, a Muslim leader about another Muslim leader, right? Um, we also asked the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, why don't you have any churches here? Did you order the assassination of... Saudi dissident Jamal Khashoggi. How are you going to make that murder right? If you didn't do it, who did? And how are you going to make it right? Um, you know, and, and and throughout the region, just asking leaders uh, who they are and, and how they see the world and how they see America, how they see Israel. Um, and of course, on the Israeli leaders, when we when I sat with them at the highest levels. How do they see the Iranian regime? How do they see their relationship with the United States and the future of the region? And uh, I'm just getting wonderful, fascinating feedback from people who are like, look, like I know I need to understand these things, but there is no other book that let me listen to the actual leaders themselves. Whether I agree with them or I disagree with them, what do they actually think? What do they believe? What do they say? What are, their, what are they actually doing uh, does it correspond with what they say they're going to do? This is the book, Enemies and Allies. Now, you asked how I got there. Well, maybe that's another question because uh, <laughs> fascinating doors opened up. Um, how much do you want me to get into that? Well, so the reason I asked you how you got there is because in the book, you talk about, you have a subheading on the historical meeting with evangelical leaders. Right. And you have like play by play you know, the conversation that is surrounding, he says, welcome to the new Saudi Arabia. And I've, I've been to Saudi Arabia, but it was a long time ago before women could drive there, which was just a recent development. I drove right. there off base. I, I had privileges because I was command sponsored. I was there on, as an active duty military member. And as a part of my job, my boss was like, you know, I, I take the Jeep and go do this or go over to this other, you know, and I'd, I'd go and I'd do that. Mm -hmm. And as long as I had a hat on, it was fine. As long as I was in uniform and with the hat on, I right, could drive right. off base. And I just remembered being there and thinking, well, first of all, my American perceptions of what Saudi Arabians and Middle Easterners are, have it's come a long way since then. But at the time, it was kind of like, you know, these are people we don't understand. And I found them to be incredibly kind and 
very deferent, you know, they were deferential to me as a foreigner, which I found to be interesting because I was a woman and I thought they treated all women like trash. So, um, and I, I also remember being outside the mall and a Mercedes Benz pulls up and a very well-dressed, like dapper looking guy gets out and three women and one child and the women were dressed immaculately, all designer clothes, beautiful. And they all put on the full length covering um, from head to toe. And then they got in order of, you know, wifery, I guess. And then the child held one of the wives hands and then they, you know, filed into the mall. And I just, I felt like I was inside of a movie set because I was seeing these things that I'd read about, but I'm seeing them in person. And then I'm reading in your book where you actually have, where he, he talks about, he's thanking someone. And he says, he recently finished reading a book about evangelical Christians and was very interested in who we are and what we believe. He makes two comments that intrigued you a great deal. The first was each nation should allow its people to believe in what they want to believe. And number two, we believe in Jesus as the savior of the whole world. He is in our book as he is in yours. When he comes back, Jesus will judge the entire earth and lead us in the right direction. What, what Joel, what, because I'm an evangelical. So tell me about that. Yeah, well, you just, it's fascinating what you, the way you frame this, because thank you for, first of all, for your service to the United States in serving in the military. And, um, and it is interesting, those who have served in Saudi Arabia, because we've had hundreds of thousands of troops over the years rotate through Saudi Arabia um, at, at times to physically protect um, our allies, Saudi Arabia, from an invasion from Saddam Hussein or, or to launch uh, the liberation of Iraq, there's, you know, and, and, the, and the liberation of Kuwait. So we've had a lot of Americans there, but for many years, uh, decades, century, uh, Saudi Arabia has cons- been considered the forbidden kingdom, right? They did not think they needed to open themselves up to the scrutiny of the world, much less welcome visitors and tourists. And I will tell you, as a Jewish person, also a Jewish person who believes in Jesus. I, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So I'm unique. Um, I'm also an Israeli citizen as well as American, as you had alluded to. I'm the first Israeli person uh, who's not a prime minister or a head of Mossad who's ever publicly met with the leaders of Saudi Arabia. In fact, our prime minister, then Netanyahu, and our chief of uh, our intelligence services, Yossi Cohen, did meet with Mohammed bin Salman in December of last year. I, I report that in the book, but they didn't do it publicly. It was it was leaked, and then we my, our news service, All Israel News, confirmed it. And I, as I said, it's in the book, but they didn't have a picture snapped of each other. MBS and I do have a photo, and us uh, with our entire evangelical delegation. Wow. He told me that we were the first Christian leaders in the entire three hundred year history of the Saud family controlling Saudi Arabia that had ever been invited. No, they had never invited Christian leaders into the palace ever in 300 years. We were the first. So things are changing. And some of those changes are really good. And I describe them in the book because I think very little coverage in American and Western media is, is, is covering really the important and exciting changes that are happening in Saudi Arabia in detail. I mean, a lot. It's not just one or two. And yet there are some real problems still, of course. I mean, it's, you know, it's Saudi Arabia. They've been a problem for a long time. This is the culture in which Osama bin Laden grew up. This is the 
culture in which 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11, this is where they grew up in Saudi Arabia. They were Saudis, right? So um, it was a culture, I don't, you know, not that they, the Saudi government, I don't believe uh, was involved directly in any way or supported the 9-11 attack, but they did allow a culture that was very extremist, very anti-Western, anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Jewish for a long, long time. So this is a sea change that's happening in Saudi Arabia now. And I explore in Enemies and Allies why. What's happening? Why is it happening? And why now? But a lot of that can be traced back to this new young leader. He's 37 years old. He, Mohammed bin Salman uh, wasn't, you know, he was 16 years old when 9-11 happened. But he told us, he told me on the record that he didn't want to grow up in a society, in a country that would be perceived as a terrorist country, a backward country, a, an extremist country. And he vowed to fight these extremists, these terrorists, and to change the entire direction of the country. And that's what he's doing. Now, he's made some serious mistakes along the way. And I, I write about those, quite honestly, in uh, Enemies and Allies. But he's a leader worth understanding because he is a game changer. I agree with you 100% on that because later in the same chapter, as you're closing it out, you talk about what he said about the reforms. He actually says, MBS, about letting women drive, that extremists went crazy, that they predicted terror attacks and rapes, and instead nothing happened. And the same with then he went forward with letting women attend soccer matches and right. you know eating in restaurants afterwards. And that made the sports teams happy and they doubled their attendance and restaurants got more business and nothing bad happened. And he says in the book, my point is, as each obstacle is overcome and people see their lives get better when we do the reforms, it gets easier to do the next reform. People have more confidence, but I'm not sure that would be the case if we built a church at this time. And so he's clearly a man completely set apart from any leader before him in his willingness to even say those words, because we're talking right. about Islam and its practice, which is quite rigid when it's done fundamentally um, and in a non-Westernized type of a way. I found that to be striking as I'm reading in the book that this is what he said, because I've never heard anything like this. I've heard that he is, quote, progressive, which to me as a Christian and a conservative, someone being progressive can be fantastic or it can be full of hell and the devil. So, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly impressed if you say, oh, he's a progressive leader, but right. to listen to this, if the characterization is in, in tune with what you have here, then he really is. And I, I'm shocked by it because often when people say, I've met with this leader or I've met with this individual, I have a groundbreaking revelation to share, or we had this amazing conversation. And then you read what they, they didn't, they didn't have an amazing time. It wasn't groundbreaking. They just, they chatted and they got to meet and it was groundbreaking the same way it was groundbreaking the first time I met President Trump. It was groundbreaking for me, but he also shook hands and took a picture with in that photo op, I think 350 people, including first responders and the police chief and the mayor and everyone else from the place right. where we were. So it was groundbreaking for me, but not so much for him. And we had literally 45 seconds together and I don't think President Trump found it to be very illuminating meeting me. It was just not that that memorable, but it was for me. So the perspective on right. whether or not it was memorable is often it, you, you come away disappointed. I did not in, in this encounter that you had with MBS. And so what what Joel would you say out of the book and everyone that you've met here? And it's it's quite a list of people 
that you cover, what would you say was the most momentous moment for you when you were talking with one of these leaders um, or, or your interaction with them? What can you share as the most momentous account that you had? Sure. Well, let me process that for a moment. I, I think you're right. These, these actually are very uh, <laughs> dramatic conversations. Yeah. Uh, they will defy people's expectations, partly because the Western media, the American mainstream media is so hostile to the leaders of the Middle East. It's interesting. They, uh, some, some journalists in the United States are so so sympathetic towards the Iranian leadership uh, in this negotiations with the United States over nuclear deal or whatever, and they and they sort of don't expose the Iranian regime for their horrors, and yet they're so hostile to countries that are are the allies of the United States that are making mistakes, yes, and have a bad history in many areas, yes, but are trying to make changes. I think it's important to to report on changes when they're happening, good or bad. Uh, so the people at least are aware of what's happening, right? And I think why enemies and allies is catching people's attention is because they really are seeing things that no one else is telling them um, or is telling them that it, this is important, okay? These reforms are important. They're not enough. Much more has to be done in each of these countries. And, and what I'm trying to do as I meet each of these leaders is almost do a, um, the way a, a Newsweek or Time used to do a cover story, a profile on these folks. These are not full book length interviews or uh, profiles because I'm trying to give you a range of leaders, right? But they're designed to give you a sense of who they are and what people say about them, who are their supporters and the, who their worst critics say that they are. And then you can decide because you're getting to meet them the way I've gotten to meet them. Now, to answer your specific question, the most momentous, wow, there were, there were many, but I'll pick one. When I met with Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, who's affectionately known in the region as by his initials MBZ, he's the crown prince in Saudi, I'm sorry, in, in the United Arab Emirates. And the UAE, United Arab Emirates, that's the country that just made peace with Israel in August and then and signed it in September of last year, 2020. This was the beginning of the Abraham Accord, a groundbreaking, game-changing, incredibly significant peace um, deal brokered by President Trump with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and not only the leader of the United Arab Emirates, but also Bahrain. This was huge. And they all should have won Nobel Peace Prizes. What was interesting to me was two years before MBZ, agreed to the Abraham Accords, he told me and my evangelical Christian colleagues that he was going to make peace with Israel. He broke that news to us. But at the time, the ground rules of our conversation were that this was all off the record. We were having a conversation to get to know each other, a two-hour conversation in the palace, in the capital, Abu Dhabi. But we couldn't go out and tell people. He, it, it was his way of sharing things with us and us sharing things with him that could be kept in confidence. Well, we walked out of that, Stacey, and we wanted to tell the world, There's a, this is a, we have a huge breaking news story. Another Arab country is going to make peace with Israel for the first time in 25 years. You know, it, it, Jordan was the last country to make peace with Israel. That was 1994. Some of your listeners weren't even born yet. I'm not <laughs> sure if your producer was born yet. So I'm just saying, 
That seems like a long time ago, right? 25 years. So he told us, but we kept his confidence. We kept our word. We didn't tell anyone. But when the news broke, we were on it. I, I run two news services, all Israel news and all Arab news. And we did a lot of exclusive reporting about this because I already had the backstory. I already knew. And because, you know, because he went public, I was able to include that conversation that had been off the record. It's now on the record in Enemies and Allies. But that was one of, that was certainly one of, if not the most dramatic moments, because we were sitting on a story that literally nobody else in the world knew. So that is fascinating. Um, and, and, and that's why I asked you that, because I, out, of, out of everything in the book, I was wondering which one hit you, like the, which one to you was most impactful. But I also, as I was reading through, you had um, lunch at the White House, and this was a briefing between, it was supposed to originally, it was you and uh, Vice President Pence. Right. And then it ended up being that you got to be in a briefing with the president. And then you had an opportunity to speak to him. And I kind of had a similar experience, only not on uh, foreign policy. I was invited, like it, it was in the same week, early in the week. And then I got to go to the White House later in the week, go through the security and everything and sit with a bunch of other black leaders from across the country with President Trump. And I hadn't prepared anything to say because I assumed that we'd be sitting there listening to a briefing right. and listening to the president. And right. then he begins to go around the table and each of us got a chance to address him for you know a, a few minutes. And so I got to actually speak directly to him about some things that were important to me, the pro-life movement, religious freedom, yes. and just the fact that we've been praying for him. You know, it, It's all over the country, little groups of people are praying for the president. Even now it's President yeah. Biden. We don't like his agenda, but we still pray for him. And so I wanted him to know that. And I remember him saying, thank you. Thank you very much, Stacey. And I was like, I can't believe it. The president of the United States just addressed me by name after I told him something. And friends of mine recognized that I was there, not because they could see me, but because the C-SPAN cameras were in there and they recognized my voice. So my phone ah. started pinging off. But of course I didn't have it because you have to give it up when you enter. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, so, um, so after that, he actually gave shout outs as he often does in the East Room where we were all gathered for the Black History Month reception. And he said, oh, and Stacey Washington, it was so nice to meet you, a very, a, a wonderful woman. And I'm like, what? So, you know, everyone's wow. looking over like, did you hear that? I'm like, did he just say that? <laughs> so those, those are kind of, those are little touchstones when you meet a world leader and they say something to you and you're kind of like, what did you just say? And so I, I was reading here, you have the deal of the century and this is March 7th, 2019, you are at the White House. And then you you get the briefing the vice president and then into the Oval Office. So I was wondering, as we close out here, if you could share um, your your reactions and just your thoughts at this point, because it's so much that that's that's a you know a few years back. Um, yeah. Now here we are. We're into the Biden administration. It's been a really horrible first eight or nine months, and we don't see it going any better. Um, but we had something special when President Trump was in office. And I found him to be, everyone hated his tweets, but I found him to be so nice and likable, so personable and willing to laugh, un unpretentious. I found him to be the real deal. When I meet people who are famous or who are well-known or whatever, or, or who are powerful, I often wonder if they're really like they appear. You know, the, the, the persona that you see when you see them on television or when you see them speaking somewhere. And he really is just like himself all the time. He doesn't put on an attitude um, for one place and then he's different for another place, which was something that Barack Obama did very well. He was different depending on the situation. 
So what did you make of the president when you met with him and, and what did you feel like came out of your meeting? Well, it's interesting, Stacey, and, and I, as you saw, I, I actually deal with this in the book because, um, you know, I, as I describe in Enemies and Allies, I've had a longstanding friendship uh, and relationship with um, Mike Pence and, and, and his wife, Karen, and and of course, you know, who knew that he's going to become the vice president, the second most powerful person in the world, and working with, you know, a fascinating but high, you know, high, uh, a lightning rod of a president, right? Uh, uh, either beloved or hated by, you know, everyone on the planet, one way or the other, very strong feelings. Um, I had a long friendship with Mike Pompeo, and I didn't see, I don't think he saw coming that he was going to become, you know, the CIA director and then the secretary of state in the Trump administration. I say that because most of my relationships, my deeper relationships and my ongoing relationships during the Trump years was with his team, people I knew, not always at that high level, but you know, others as well. But I had not been supportive um, of, of, of Donald Trump as a, as a candidate. I did vote for him at the end, but I, and I told him about that in the Oval Office. And I said, <laughs> you have to ask me, tell me about yourself. And I, at one point I finally said, listen, I, I ought to tell you that I had been a never Trumper in 2016 until just the Thursday before the election. Now, Stacey, you've met him and you've tracked him and you know that world in Washington, how many people actually use the term never Trumper about themselves with Donald Trump, much less in the Oval Office, right? Because <laughs> looking at the, 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 the look in his eye, I'm guessing not that often, you know? <laughs> But he listened to me well enough to say, well, what happened on Thursday before the election? Like, you know, he didn't just say, when he heard never Trumper, he didn't just turn off. Mm -hmm. He actually was listening to this conversation. And he said, well, what happened on Thursday? Well, I said, well, I, you know, I was a couple of days before the election. I had to make a decision. I live in Israel. My wife and I are dual citizens. We had to send in our, our ballot, right, by absentee. And basically, I you know, we concluded, look, you know, we trust Hillary Clinton to keep all her promises. That's why we're against her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're not. I, I said, Mr. President, I'm, I'll be honest. I was not sure I could trust you. I know you were making conservative promises in the campaign and you brought Pence in and all the rest. But I didn't I didn't trust you. I was honest with him. But I said, listen, um, I've been impressed and I say it in the book, I, you know, I didn't agree with him on everything. And I, you know, and some of those tweets and speeches, those bothered me. Um, and I explained that in the book. But the point is, he kept a lot of promises. I told him, you'll go down in history, no matter what, as the most pro-life, pro-Israel president in the history of the United States of America. That's big. And it's big to me and my family and my friends. And I went through another, I don't know, eight, nine, ten. I can't remember exactly. Maybe it was a dozen specific things he'd done, moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Every president said he'd do that. They never do. Trump did. Uh, recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, ripping up the Iran nuclear deal, which was so insane and so dangerous for the United States, as well as Israel, as well as the Arab world, and on and on and on and on. I mean, I, so while I didn't agree with all of the way that the White House would run or every tweet and everything, and some of those things bothered me, but the overall trajectory of what he was accomplishing was so impressive to me and so surprising. And I was very, I was very honest with him. He did also ask, he said, Joel, you're, just, you're an evangelical? And I said, yes. Mm -hmm. He said, but your name is 
Joel Rosenberg, isn't that Jewish? And I said, well, on my father's side, yes. On my mom's side, is you know, she's a Gentile. She goes, well, all right, whatever. But how can you be Jewish and believe in Jesus? I don't understand that. That was actually the first question that he asked me. Imagine, I mean, I had never set foot in the Oval Office before, Stacy. <laughs> I've written so many scenes in my novels, the ones that your son is reading probably, in that Oval Office, about that Oval Office, but I'd never been there. I never had a meeting. And now the first substantive question in my first ever meeting at the Oval Office was, how can you be Jewish and believe in Jesus? And I loved giving him that answer, as well as, you know, talking to him about mostly what we were really trying to talk about, which, which was how he he was leading, in, I thought, in the right direction to make peace in, in the Middle East when everyone else in, in Washington and the world was telling him he was doing the wrong things. I was there in part to tell him, I think you're on the right track. And I think you and the vice president and the secretary of state are on the verge of making history because I think your, your, your strategy is exactly right, in part because it's exactly opposite of every president and, and secretary of state before, and none of those worked. I think you're about and about to work, and in part because I knew, right, Stacey, I already knew walking into that Oval Office that an Arab leader had told me he was going to make peace and, with Israel. So I knew Trump and his team were heading in the right direction, and that's partly why I wish they all had won Nobel Peace Prizes, though I think the Nobel Prize has been devalued mm -hmm. because of the highly politicized and ridiculous way they run it. So it's not worth what it used to be. But the point is Trump did it. Uh, there's been only two Arab-Israeli peace treaties in the history of the region, Egypt and Jordan. Both of them had been brokered by Democrat presidents. Now Trump brokered four. Four in one year, in six months, actually. It was really quite exciting. And uh, I hope people who read Enemies and Allies will see that I'm honest. I, you know, I will tell you if I disagree with a policy or a person or, or at least the way critics see a person and does that hold up or not. I think the book is, it, it, you know, it's not just a bunch of facts and figures. There's also analysis in there. But the bottom line is I take you into the room with me and you get to decide based on what you see and what you hear are these people credible? Do, you know, are their reforms important? Is this making a lasting difference in the Middle East? And I, I'm excited about Enemies and Allies and for more and more people to be reading it because I think it's important for people to assess it for themselves. There's so much media bias that people need to be able to listen for themselves and, and then evaluate for themselves. I think that's so impactful, you getting a chance to share about being what some people call a messianic Jew uh, with the president of the United States who hadn't heard of it before. Yeah. And I just, I, it's I think- It's kind of crazy, that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's stunning because it is something important. And it's, it's once you understand what it is, it opens a whole new world to you because there are such wonderful, um, they're, they're Christian apologists, but they're also experts in different areas of life who write and make amazing contributions who are Messianic Jews. And so the, the context is really important there and I love it. So I, 
I know we went over on time, but I'm so grateful that you joined us. I was, I, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm going to be the cool kid at Next Book Club because I've interviewed you and I have this book to share about our conversation. I'm going to be totally dominating book club for like 20 minutes with this. All but, right. That's, um, that's good. I, I'm so glad you came on. I hope we can talk to you again. I'm really grateful that you wrote this book to give us a peek inside of areas that we would never get to go to ourselves. These are conversations and meaning Hollywood screenwriters couldn't write about it. We couldn't imagine it. Only you could live it and then write about it firsthand in order for us to see and peek into these worlds that are so closed off to us. New York Times bestselling author news editor, dual U.S. Israeli citizen. You're like the guy, you're the cool kid in the room when it comes to meeting people and asking the best questions. Joel C. Rosenberg, thank you for joining us. It's been an honor, Stacy, and I'm happy to be your Jerusalem correspondent whenever you need me. <laughs> oh, you will get calls. <laughs> we will call you back on that. Thank you, Wonderful. sir. Thanks for joining us. And that's another wrap for our podcast here at Family Vision Media and StacyOnTheRight.com. Check us out online. And God bless you. Until next time.